The America's National Parks Podcast is brought to you by L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean is a proud partner of the National Park Foundation. L.L. Bean and NPF share a belief that every community should have the opportunity and resources to experience the joy of the outdoors together. Through this partnership, they're not only helping people find their parks, they're helping protect, restore, and improve parks across the U.S. If it's outside, L.L. Bean is all in. Be an outsider with L.L. Bean. I've been thinking a lot about American symbols lately. As America changes, our relationship with treasured American icons does as well. Too often we look at our symbols and see them as the enduring legacy of our past. When in reality, symbols have always been a mirror for us to reflect our current moments in, in order to inform our lives and our country's direction. In the United States, the American flag gets a lot of play, as does the Statue of Liberty and the Bald Eagle. But there's one symbol that we all know, but doesn't always immediately come to mind as a representation of the American experience. And that's a shame because it better illustrates the idea of America than planned and designed effigies like the flag and Lady Liberty. I'm Jason Epperson, and today on the America's National Parks podcast, The Liberty Bell. The Liberty Bell was designed, to be sure, to represent liberty itself. In fact, it bears a timeless message from the Bible. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto the inhabitants thereof. But the Liberty Bell wasn't always an iconic symbol of America. It earned that designation through its purpose, its moment, and its flaws. The bell we know as the Liberty Bell was once called the State House Bell and it rang in the tower of the Pennsylvania State House. Today, we call that building Independence Hall. Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly Isaac Norris first ordered a bell for the bell tower in 1751 from the Whitechapel Foundry in London. That bell cracked on the first test ring. Local metal workers John Pass and John Stowe melted down that bell and cast a new one right in Philadelphia. It's this bell that would ring to call lawmakers to their meetings and the townspeople together to hear the reading of the news. Benjamin Franklin wrote to Catherine Ray in 1755, Adieu, the bell rings, and I must go among the grave ones and talk politics. But it would be another 75 years before the bell gained the significance we know it for today. That inscription from the Bible, The King James Version, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. The verse refers to the Jubilee or the instructions to the Israelites to return property and free slaves every 50 years. Isaac Norris probably chose this inscription to commemorate the 50th anniversary of William Penn's 1701 Charter of Privileges, which granted religious liberties and political self-government to the people of Pennsylvania. The bell weighed 2,080 pounds at order. It's 70% copper, 25% tin, and contains small amounts of lead, gold, arsenic, silver, and zinc. 
The bell's wooden yoke is American elm, but there's no proof that it's the original. Though it's the stuff of legend, the bell probably didn't ring on July 4th, 1776. We'll get to the origins of that story in a moment. And the bell may also not have rung on July 8th, 1776. It is known that bells in the city of Philadelphia were ringing to celebrate the public announcement of the Declaration of Independence, but the State House steeple was under repair at the time, making it unlikely for the Liberty Bell to be in use. The following year, 1777, the bell was removed from Philadelphia under armed guard and taken to Allentown, Pennsylvania, where it was hidden in a church, but not because it was yet famous. It was for fear that the British would melt it to make cannons. The bell rang often during its functional lifetime. Between 1753 and 1846, it tolled for many people and many occasions, but particularly the deaths of Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson. There is evidence that it rang to mark the Stamp Act tax, one of the causes of the Revolutionary War, which, by the way, was proposed by colonial governor of Pennsylvania, Sir William Keith a man who was ran out of the country and forced to face bankruptcy back in Britain. He's also my 13th great-grandfather, but I digress. The State House Bell's inscription of liberty went hardly noticed until the early 19th century. The words inscribed on it provided a rallying cry for abolitionists wishing to end slavery in the 1830s. The Anti-Slavery Record, an abolitionist publication, first referred to the bell as the Liberty Bell in 1835 but that name was not widely adopted until years later. Millions of Americans became familiar with the bell in popular culture through George Lippard's 1847 fictional story, Ring, Grandfather, Ring, when the bell came to symbolize pride in a new nation. The story tells the tale of an old bellman ringing the bell to pronounce independence after his grandson heard Congress's resolve. The popular tale, though fictional, was retold as truth and thereafter linked the bell to the Declaration of Independence. With George Lippard's original text, here's Abigail Trebue. Let me paint you a picture on the canvas of the past. It is a cloudless summer day. Yes, a clear blue sky arches and smiles above a quaint edifice rising among giant trees in the center of a wide city. That edifice is built of red brick with heavy window frames and a massy hall door. The wide-spreading dome of St. Peter's, the snowy pillars of the Parthenon, the gloomy glory of Westminster Abbey. None of these, nor anything like these, are here to elevate this edifice of plain red brick into a gorgeous monument of architecture. Plain red brick the walls. The windows partly framed in stone, the roof eaves heavy with intricate carvings, the hall door ornamented with pillars of dark stone. Such is the State House of Philadelphia in this year of our Lord, 1776. Around this edifice, stately trees arise. 
Yonder, toward the dark walls of Walnut Street Jail, spreads a pleasant lawn, enclosed by a plain board fence. Above our heads, these trees lock their massy limbs and spread their leafy canopy. There are walks here, too, not fashioned in squares and circles, but spreading in careless negligence along the lawn. Benches, too, rude benches, on which repose the forms of old men with gray hairs and women with babes in their arms. This is a beautiful day, and this is a pleasant lawn. But why do these clusters of citizens with anxious faces gather round the state house walls? There is the merchant in his velvet garb and ruffled shirt. There the mechanic with apron on his breast and tools in his hand. There the bearded sailor and the dark-robed minister all grouped together. Why this anxiety on every face? This gathering in little groups all over the lawn. Yet hold a moment. In yonder wooden steeple, which crowns the red brick state house, stands an old man with white hair and sunburnt face. He is clad in humble attire, yet his eye gleams as it is fixed upon the ponderous outline of the bell suspended in the steeple there. The old man tries to read the inscription on that bell, but cannot. Out upon the waves, far away in the forest, thus has his life been passed. He is no scholar. He scarcely can spell one of those strange words carved on the surface of that bell. By his side, gazing in his face, that sunburnt face in wonder, stands a flaxen-haired boy with laughing eyes of summer blue. Come here, my boy. You are a rich man's child. You can read. Spell me those words and I'll bless ye, my good child. And the child raised itself on tiptoe and pressed its tiny hands against the bell and read in lisping tones these memorable words. Proclaim liberty to all the land and all the inhabitants thereof. The old man ponders for a moment on these strange words. Then gathering the boy in his arms, he speaks. Look here, my child. Wilt do the old man a kindness. Then haste you downstairs and wait in the hall by the big door until a man shall give you a message for me. A man with a velvet dress and a kind face will come out from the big door and give you a word for me. When he gives you that word, then run out yonder in the street and shout it up to me. Do you mind? It needed no second command. The boy, with blue eyes and flaxen hair, sprang from the old bellkeeper's arms and threaded his way down the dark stairs. The old bellkeeper was alone. Many minutes passed. Leaning over the railing of the steeple, his face toward Chestnut Street, he looked anxiously for that fair-haired boy. Moments passed, yet still he came not. The crowds gathered more darkly along the pavement and over the lawn, yet still the boy came not. Oh, groaned the old man. He has forgotten me. These old limbs will have to totter down the state house stairs and climb up again, and all on account of that child. As the word was on his lips, a merry, ringing laugh broke on the ear. 
There, among the crowds on the pavement, stood the blue-eyed boy clapping his tiny hands while the breeze blowed his flaxen hair all about his face. And then, swelling his little chest, he raised himself on tiptoe and shouted a single word. Ring. Do you see that old man's eye fire? Do you see that arm so suddenly bared to the shoulder? Do you see that withered hand grasping the iron tongue of the bell? The old man is young again. His veins are filled with new life. Backward and forward, with sturdy strokes, he swings the tongue. The bell speaks out. The crowd in the street hear it and burst forth in one long shout. Old Delaware hears it and gives it back in the hurrah of a thousand sailors. The city hears it and starts up from desk and workbench as though an earthquake had spoken. Yet still, while the sweat pours from his brow, that old bellkeeper hurls the iron tongue and still, boom, 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 the bell speaks to the city and to the world. There is terrible poetry in the sound of that state house bell at the dead of night when striking its sudden and solemn one. It rouses crime from its task, mirth from its wine cup, murder from its knife, bribery from its gold. There is a terrible poetry in that sound. It speaks to us like a voice from our youth, like a knell of God's judgment, like a solemn yet kind remembrance of friends now dead and gone. There is a terrible poetry in that sound at dead of night. But there was a day when the echo of that bell awoke a world slumbering in tyranny and crime. Yes, as the old man swung the iron tongue, the bell spoke to all the world. That sound crossed the Atlantic, pierced the dungeons of Europe, the workshops of England, the vassal fields of France. That echo spoke to the slave, bade him look from his toil and know himself a man. That echo startled the kings upon their crumbling thrones. That echo was the knell of kingcraft, priestcraft, and all other crafts born of the darkness of ages and baptized in seas of blood. Yes, the voice of that little boy who, lifting himself on tiptoe with his flaxen hair blowing in the breeze, shouted, Ring! had a deep and awful meaning in its infant tones. Why did that word ring? Why did that echo of the state house bell speak such a deep and awful meaning to the world? Under that very bell, peeling out at noonday in an old hall, 56 traders, farmers, and merchants had assembled to shake the shackles of the world. Now let us look upon this band of plain men met in such solemn council. 
It is now half an hour previous to the moment when the bell ringer responded to the shout of the fair-haired boy. Look over the faces of these 56 men and see every eye turned to the door. There is silence in this hall. Every voice is hushed. Every face is stamped with a deep and awful responsibility. Why turns every glance to that door? The committee of three who have been out all night pinning a parchment are about to appear. The parchment with signatures of these men written with the pen lying on yonder table will either make a world free or stretch these necks upon the gibbet. The door opens. The committee appear. The three advance to the table. The parchment is laid there. Shall it be signed or not? And look, look how they rush forward. Look how the names blaze on the parchment. And now the parchment is signed. And now let word go out to all the earth. Let the bell speak out the great truth. No one recorded when or why the Liberty Bell cracked again after being recast by Pass and Stowe. But the most likely explanation is that a narrow split developed in the early 1840s after nearly 90 years of hard use. In 1846, when the city decided to repair the bell prior to George Washington's birthday, metal workers widened the thin crack to prevent its further spread and to restore the tone of the bell using a technique called stop drilling. The wide crack that we see in the Liberty Bell is actually the repair job. Look carefully and you'll see over 40 drill bit marks in that wide crack. But the repair was not successful. It failed when another fissure developed. The second crack running from the abbreviation for Philadelphia up through the word Liberty silenced the bell forever. Its clapper has been welded stationary and no one living today has heard it ring freely. But computer modeling might provide us with some clues. In 1999, graduate students from Penn State University were able to digitally create a structural model of the Liberty Bell. From this computer model, they were able to mathematically equate the vibration of the bell and add sound. Knowing that the original tone of the bell was an E-flat, they were able to come up with an approximation. Here it is. Beginning in the late 1800s, the Liberty Bell traveled across the country for display expositions and fairs, stopping in towns small and large along the way. For a nation recovering from the wounds of the Civil War, the bell served to remind Americans of a time when they fought together for independence. Movements from women's suffrage to civil rights embraced the Liberty Bell for both protest and celebration. 
Pennsylvania suffragists commissioned a replica of the Liberty Bell, the Justice Bell, which traveled across Pennsylvania in 1915 to encourage support for women's voting rights legislation. It then sat chained in silence until the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Now a worldwide symbol, the bell's message of liberty remains just as relevant and powerful today. But its message is entirely new from its original intent. The immobilized bell cannot, on its own, ring the sound of liberty throughout the land. It's up to us to keep the figurative bell tolling. And like the crack in the bell itself, liberty is flawed. Symbols are flawed. Humans are flawed. The Liberty Bell reminds us that democracy and the American idea are defective. We cannot form a perfect union, only a more perfect union. There are two other bells in Independence National Historic Park today, in addition to the Liberty Bell. The Centennial Bell, made for the nation's 100th birthday in 1876, still rings every hour in the Tower of Independence Hall. It weighs 13,000 pounds, a thousand pounds for each original state. The Bicentennial Bell, which was a gift to the people of the United States from the people of Great Britain in 1976, is currently in storage. The Liberty Bell Center is located at 526 Market Street, Philadelphia. It's open daily 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Like most of our famous monuments and memorials these days, airport-style security screening is required. Leave your pocket knives and pepper spray behind. Admission is free and entrance is on a first-come, first-served basis. Capacity is limited to 20 people at a time. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, and narrated by Abigail Trabue. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. For more great American destinations, give us a listen at the Sea America Podcast. And if you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles Podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys all over social media as our wandering family. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag Be An Outsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks. <laughs>